Good morning. Welcome to the services this morning. If you have your bulletin, you might look at that little wheel that's on the front. We've been talking about the different aspects of a balanced Christian religion for the last, oh, for the last couple of weeks anyway, and we're going to have a couple more after this, I think. I might be right in the middle. Um, and to, this morning, there's a little piece of the pie there that says worship, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. When I was assigned the topic, my mind immediately jumped to, you know, 1 Corinthians 14, where it talks about a lot about our worship assembly and um, what what we should and shouldn't do and how that should be ordered and all of that. We're not going to talk about any of that this morning. Maybe an application this afternoon. Somebody can talk about that. I got to thinking about this uh, this concept of worship. I want to spend a little time like Eddie did last week doing a little bit of a word study on the word itself. Then we're going to look at historically what worship has looked like, and then we're going to talk about um, a little episode that Jesus had with the uh, Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And after that, we'll try to draw some conclusions on maybe what worship needs to mean to us. So first of all, the word worship comes from two root words in the English language anyway, called that are worth and ship. We're familiar with that ship word, right? Friendship, sportsmanship. So that ship word means that whatever precedes it has some quality about it. So when you think about friendship, that means that the person, that this thing called this friend has some qualities about them that are worth them being your friend. If you think about sportsmanship, it means that somebody has some quality about the way they go about playing the game or the sport and they're worthy. They have good qualities about the sportsmanship or the sportsman part. So worthship means that somebody is worth, somebody has some value, and the ship part means that it's of good quality, right? And it's, so it does, it's, it's worthy, it's worth-ship. But that's an English word, right? They didn't write in English. <laughs> the Bible's not written in English. The Bible's written in Hebrew in the Old Testament and mostly Greek in the New Testament. So what words did they use? that we translate to worth-ship in the English language. So um, there are three main words. In the Hebrew language, it's called shakal. It's a primitive root to depress, that is prostate, especially reflective in homage to royalty or God, to bow yourself down, to crouch, to fall down flat, to humbly beseech, do or make I don't even know what that word means. Do reverence, make to stoop, or worship. So when you think about that, that there's some physical calities to that, and you've seen it in old times. You see the um, the Muslims do it today. They'll get down on their knees on a prayer towel, and they'll prostrate themselves, and they'll pray on their prayer towel. They'll humble themselves before Allah. That is... What this, that's where this, uh, term, or that is, what is that, that is physically talking about. But it also talks about humbly beseech, um, it talks about, in the Greek, it talks about to fawn or crouch, literally or figuratively, to prostrate oneself in homage, to do reverence to, or to adore. 
proskuneo. And another word basically means service, that is, render religious homage to serve or do service to worship. So when we think about those words, they, they mean something maybe a little different than uh, the English word. When we think about those roots that they mean, they bring about some physical activity in, the, in their definition. They bring about... Um, it's not this far-off, standoff type of deal, right? So when I think about worship, I immediately jump to the assembly. A lot of times we'll use the word corporate worship, meaning all of us have corporately come together to worship. But these words, they, they mean something different. They're talking about a lifestyle. They're talking about something that happens all the time. And we'll see that when we see them used in some scripture. So let's talk historically for a moment. So back in time, way back when the Bible was began to be written in Genesis, we have some leaders of their families, right? They're called the fathers, or they're called the patriarchs. Well, how did they worship? What were they told to do by God in the form of worship? Well, they were... We remember Cain and Abel, remember that story, right? Where one worshipped correctly and one didn't worship correctly. What was that all about? Abraham, he built altars at Shechem and Bethel and Hebron and Mount Hora. We have Jacob who built altars, as did Isaac. And Noah built an ark and offered sacrifices. So we see some traits from these early days of worship. Number one, we see that God is directly talking to them. And telling them what to do. They build different altars. They build them at different places. Some people build boats. Some people do other things. Some people pray. Some people tithe. There were no priests involved. There's not many rules or laws. They didn't have anything written down. The method varied according to God's direction. There was praying, sacrifices, tithing, altar building, all of this kind of stuff. Everybody put their cell phones on top. <coughs> Um, and so we have a, a, a little different type of worship going on back with the fathers. And then we move on to the prophets. In Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about the way God dealt differently with people over different times. It talks about at the beginning He dealt with the fathers, and then He dealt with the prophets, and Moses was one of the first ones. And we move from very little structure to very structured so the fathers, it was like, hey, Abraham, you go do this. Hey, Isaac, you go do this. Hey, Jacob, you go do this. Hey, so-and-so, you go. Everybody, it was something different at a different place. It was just whatever God wanted. But as his people expanded, not that God couldn't miraculously appear to every father at once and tell them what to do, but it became easier to deal with them through leaders or through prophets. And the first one was Moses. And we see, we see that Now sacrifices are to be made. We know when they're to be made. We know how that they're to be made. We know where they're to be made. We know who's supposed to make them. Everything becomes very detail-oriented. And you don't have to spend much time in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and 
as they're giving you definitions. And Brother Matt's talked to us about the temp, the uh, tabernacle that was built ahead of the temple, but the tabernacle that was built and the colors and the minute detail of exactly how to build everything. Everything became very, very structured. We had holy places and holy animals and holy people and holy rituals and holy times. Everything, there was these, all these things that were set apart to be done at different times and in different ways. It became very, very structured. But there's something that's important about all of that. Because when you read Leviticus and you read all, all of those different books, it can, you can get so bogged down in all of the details, but something that has always been involved in worship since the beginning of time is the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses says, The Lord our God is one Lord. Love God with all of your heart, your soul, and mind. Write God's commands on your heart. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you sit, when you walk, when you lay down. Write them on your doorposts. There's a couple of Jewish words up there, Shema and uh, Mezuzah. The Shema is the words that the Jewish people write on their doorposts. And they write them on this box called a mezuzah. And they put that mezuzah on their doorposts. So if you go into a Jewish home, almost always there will be a little box on the doorpost. And it's where they have taken this verse very literally and written God's words on their doorposts. So that when they go in, it's always been about the heart. It's always been about inside. I've heard people say that the the Old Testament was all these rules and regulations and that the New Testament is about the heart. I don't think that's the case. God has always been interested in their heart. Look in Isaiah chapter 1. Israel's heart isn't right. And look at, just listen to God as he talks about that. The Lord has no pleasure in the blood of bulls and goats. Stop bringing me meaningless sacrifices. Your incense are detestable to me. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. I hate your festivals. When you pray, I hide my eyes from you. The same God that had set up those festivals, had set up those incense, had set up all of those sacrifices, had said, offer these bulls and goats to me. He's going, I'm sick of it. Your heart's not right. I'm sick of it. And when I read that, I think about what what does our heart look like today in this assembly? Would he write this to Anna Street or would he have a different outlook? Do we come to the assembly, spend an hour here, and then go about doing whatever we want to do in the world? Are we focused? Are we God-centric? Are we Christ-focused? Does our worship look like this and smell like this and taste like this to Him? That was some serious chastisement from the Lord to His chosen people in Isaiah. It's always been about the heart. Well, we move on through history. The kingdom divides. <clears throat> after, after Solomon, after Solomon dies, Jeroboam comes back from Egypt. He'd been in exile in Egypt. It had been prophesied that he would rule over the ten tribes and he separates the ten tribes into the um, upper part, which is Israel, and the bottom part, which is the kingdom of Judah. 
Rehoboam rules over the bottom tribes here in the in the bottom part. That's where Jerusalem is. This is important because of the story that we're going to read here in just a moment in uh, in John. If we fast forward to Jesus' day, you have Judea down here with Jerusalem. You have Samaria in between. We know that Jesus went from Jerusalem to Galilee. Um, and so he passes through Samaria. And that gets us to our story in John chapter 4. And it came to pass through, uh, and, it, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a, to the town, to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour or about nine o'clock in the morning. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me drink. For his disciples had, I'm sorry, the sixth is third hour is nine, sixth hour is noon. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So you remember our divided map that we just looked at. The Samaritans are to the north, the Jews are to the south. They don't like each other. The Jews had chastised them, had made, had belittled them, had said things like, you won't be a part of the resurrection. They had said that so much that the Samaritans began to not believe in a resurrection. They didn't like each other, the Jews and the Samaritans. They had set up a separate worship place in the northern kingdom. They didn't, they didn't intermingle. They didn't like one another. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying, do you give me drink? You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus, God and man, he's weary from traveling. He's traveling from Jerusalem. He's headed to Galilee. He comes to Samaria and he's weary. He sits down on Jacob's well. And he's just sitting there resting. He sent his disciples. They've gone to town to get something to eat. It's about noon. And this lady walks up who's a Samaritan. Interesting to me that they could tell each other apart. I mean, we're in pretty close geographic proximity. I mean, I can't point out an an Okie. I mean, if somebody walks in, I can't can't tell you they're from Oklahoma necessarily unless maybe they're wearing a Boomer Sooner shirt or something. I don't know how they knew instinctively that they were different. Maybe somebody with some deeper history could would know that. But they, they instinctively know that one's a Samaritan, one's a Jew. And she, he says, hey, can you give me a drink? And she said, why would you ask me for a drink? You hate us. You don't like us. Jews don't deal with Samaritans. And, she said, and he said, if you'd asked me for a drink, I would have given you living water. And she's like, you don't even have a bucket. You know, who are you? You don't have anything to draw from. And so they get to talk about this living water. 
And he says that the water that he's talking about will well up to eternal life. And then they go on to talk. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So this woman's been had multiple companions, multiple husbands, and Jesus tells her to go bring her husband, or, or, and, and, and they get in this discussion, and he said, no, you've had five. And she said, oh, you, how is it that you know everything there is to know about me? I perceive that you're a prophet. <clears throat> our fathers worshipped on this mountain, so she's talking again. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So we began to talk about worship a little bit here, and she says, "Hey, we've they, they built their own uh, their own uh, tabernacles and temples and everything there on the on their mountain, and they've worshipped there and not gone back to Jerusalem." And she's asking Jesus, "Who's right?" And he said unto her, "Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father." You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that that Messiah is coming. He who is Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So we have this interesting conversation about worship that strikes up between Jesus, the master, the Messiah, and this woman of Samaria. She asks, hey, we've worshipped in the mountain, is that right? Jesus says, no, the Jews have that part right. But he says there's coming a time when it's not going to matter what mountain you're on or what city you're in. There's coming a time, and it's now here, that you should start worshiping in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? The reason I went through the historical perspective of the Old Testament is because I've heard a lot of people say that, well, the Old Testament was a bunch of laws and whatever, and they weren't worshiping from the heart. But I, I think, hopefully, I proved to you that that wasn't what Jesus, or that wasn't what the Lord wanted in the Old Testament. He wanted them to worship from the heart. So that's not what's changing. When He says the hour is coming and now is that I want you to worship in spirit and in truth, it's not that I want you to start worshiping me from the heart. That's not what's changing because that was has always been, all the way back to the beginning of time. Back to the fathers, back to the patriarchs. So the hour is coming and now is. So let's look at some of the old. So first of all, we had the Samaritans. They had a defective worship. They weren't worshiping the way they were supposed to, where they were supposed to. They ended up following idols in a lot of cases. 
<clears throat> they felt comfortable in establishing some of this stuff because they were in some of the same places that the patriarchs were. Where Abraham built an altar in Shechem, that's right there next to Sychar, where Jesus and Jacob's well. And so there was all of this ancient history back to the forefathers that was there in the land of Samaritan, where the Samaritans dwelt. So they began to say, hey, this is part of the promised land. It doesn't matter that Jerusalem is where the temple is. We'll set up our own temple up here. And Jesus says, that's not the answer. But the Jew, so he says the Jews were right as far as the temple's concerned. But he said their worship has been carnal in nature. They've been offering bulls and goats blood, carnal, physical things on this earth. He's been, they've been offering that kind of blood. They've referred to the spirit, but it's been at a distance through these shadows and these types. And Brother Matt talked to us. It's been years ago now about the tabernacle and all of the types and the shadows and the things that, that were being foretold that were to come. So what's the new part? Well, God, Jesus is saying the true nature of God is going to be revealed. At the end of his statement, he said, you're looking for the Messiah. I'm that guy. I am God in flesh. I'm the guy. Something's changing. <laughs> The legal sacrifices, they were going to be consummated by the death of Christ. So all of these bulls and goats and their meaningless blood, and it talks about this over in Hebrews, that that blood, that the, that this new covenant was going to be through the death of a testator, through the death of a, of a different type of blood. A spiritual dispensation took the place of the carnal ordinances. We would discover the spiritual natures of God, the true meaning of salvation, the truth about earthly and heavenly things, the true nature of the human soul. So Jesus is here. Jesus is bringing in a new dispensation, a new way of thinking. He's bringing in a new truth. So I've heard my whole life, you know, sincerity and in accordance with God's will, that that's what those verses mean. And I'm not saying they don't mean that, but I'm saying they mean so much more. The Bible tells us that Jesus is full of grace and truth. The Bible tells us that the law, that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life in a couple uh, chapters, ten chapters later here in, in John. What Jesus is about to do is He's about to replace all of these promises and these shadows and these types. Jesus is going to become the substance of the things that we hope for. Hebrews talks to us about that. He, we are going to have actual living fellowship with God. So that's something that's different. That's something that's new. Deuteronomy puts it this way in the Old Testament. It says, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your 
good. So, don't let the summary fool you. We're not done yet. <clears throat> so, what does all that mean, right? So, that Deuteronomy there, it says, love the Lord, follow the Lord, do His will. We're told to pray without ceasing. We're told to live a Christian life that shows us to be a peculiar people. Do you stand out? At work, at school, at whatever? Do people think, boy, that Yancey, he's a little strange. And I mean strange because of Christian reasons, not strange because he's just strange. Right? Do you talk differently? Do people view you differently? Because of your relationship with Christ. Back to Isaiah. Right? Is, is your religion balled up in an hour service here at Anna Street? And then you leave here and it's all about something else? What's your focus? Are you focused on building a business? I know I've got other folks in here that can raise their hand on that. But is it the most important thing in your life? Or is it an avenue for you to be a better Christian? What are you focused on when you leave here? Because you see, God demands our worship 24-7. It's not a one-hour deal on Sunday. He demands that He is first and foremost in our lives all the time. When you sit, when you walk, when you lay down at night. So how do you show up? We had an exercise at work with our young leaders. And we asked them to develop a personal mission statement. That personal mission statement, that we gave them some criteria for going about developing that personal mission statement. And we said, think about all your different roles in life, right? I'm a father, or I'm a mother, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, I'm an employee, I'm an elder, I'm a, I'm a leader at work, I'm a whatever. Think about all of your different roles. And then think about how you show up in those roles. What's the epitaph? that would be written about how you show up in all of those different roles. Are you the spouse that you ought to be? Are you the leader that you ought to be? Are you the Christian you ought to be? Are you the brother, the sister, the mother, the father, the dad, the uncle, the aunt? All these different roles. Are you the person in all of those roles that God wants you to be? And from that, we developed a personal mission statement. And that mission statement for me was very God-centered. I can tell you if I developed that personal mission statement 20, 25 years ago, it would have been a totally different mission statement. Now, my boss did it about 15 years ago, and he read me his. And I was like, dude, that's you. And it was Christ-centered from 20 years ago. And it's still, and he's still very much, that's very much who he is today. And it talked about he would, how he would show up at home as a father and how he would show up to his kids and how he would show up as a leader at Polk and how he would show up as a leader and, and all these different areas. And I'm like, man, dude, that's you. He's like, yeah, the surprising thing is I wrote that 20 years ago. And that's awesome. I can tell you mine are, mine would be different. I'm pretty confident that they would be. 
But how do you show up? How do you worship God 24-7? Because it can't just be about Sunday morning. He demands more than that. Because He is worthy of it. We sang the song, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is He. He's worthy. He is holy. He is set apart. He created us. He loves us. He gave His Son. He is worthy of our worship. So, I don't... I don't have any exercises for you. I don't have any, you know, things to go home. But I would say this. Meditate on the lesson and think about the the worthiness of His worship. Think about who He is. Think about what He is. Think about His being. Think about everything about Him. Think about Him being a Creator. Think about how Jesus showed up at Gethsemane for you and for me. For the forgiveness of our sins. And then think about what you should look like as a Christian wearing his name in the world. This is how he showed up. How do you show up as we stand and sing?